Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am your host, Adam Duritz. I am here with my friend, your other host, James Campion. The very one. Uh, and today, <laughs> we are going to talk about someone who, at least to the two of us, is everything. And that that's Prince. Indeed. Understatement. Uh, I think a little setup to, th- to understand, to me, how important Prince was. You have to understand where music is in the late 70s. Uh, Disco, which is a completely integrated musical form, has been huge throughout the 70s, and there is a massive backlash to it, to the point where there's even a a guy, I can't remember his name, the radio DJ, who has a big uh, post-game thing in Comiskey Park in Chicago, where they uh, kill disco, and they, they have a huge bonfire, and they burn disco records in the middle of the field, and while... I was getting tired of disco too, like anything you hear a little too much of. There is this underlying thing where the backlash against disco is also a white backlash against black music. Whether I don't think I don't mean it to be necessarily a racist thing. I don't people think people even noticed it was that or even thought of it that way until they looked back at it later. But the fact is that disco was a really integrated musical form in a way that rock has been at times, but not it's infrequent. Yeah. You know, in the 60s, rock music was very much white. There were a few, into, you know, wild integrated bands like Sly and the Family Stone or Hendrix's, the experience, his bands. But it, it wasn't that common. And there were some others as well that right. I'm just not thinking of off the top of my head. But it's not the most common thing in the world. And in the wake of the sort of disco sucks era backlash. And which, by the way, also equates to. Saturday Night Fever with the John Travolta well, and the, the white suit and the Bee Gees, and they are all white. They're all white. So, but, but yeah, but so disco was, music is very, very integrated. It was a synthetic for me in high school. There was a battle because, as you and I have talked about, I loved all funk and soul growing up. You know, I love the Commodores and, and, and Earth, Wind & Fire and Stevie Wonder and all those bands, right? So when disco came, I, I understood it. I, I got it. I love Staying Alive. I think it's one of the great rock record, you know, uh, pop records of oh, all time. Oh, me too. I definitely got sick of it, though. But you do get sick of it. Yeah. But the thing is, it became so saturated. I mean, hugely saturated in 78, 77, and 78, which you're talking about leading up to 79, when Prince makes his first albums, 879, 80. That there was this huge, like you said, backlash because it was so big, but it was also equated not only with black music, but it was equated with homosexuals because it grew up out of the gay clubs. It was equated yeah. with the put your nose up, Studio 54, we're better than you kind of feeling, the synthetic thing. It lost a lot of the Midwestern. It lost a lot of the people outside of New York and L.A. There was kind of this feeling like this is not real music, which was unfair, but that's what, what you're talking about. Yeah, and the backlash when it happens – whether it's intended or not, it ends up being a backlash against a lot of these things you're talking about. Right. And the result of it is that radio really stops playing any black music. Mainstream rock radio and mainstream radio really stops playing any black music at all, except a few artists who you know were established before that, like right. uh, Diana Ross or... Uh, Sure. Michael Jackson. Well, Michael Jackson. Those came are the up only ones. And MTV, walls. which comes about a year later, no black music doesn't play any black music at all. Not even Michael first. Jackson, and not even Prince. And we no, Prince about isn't, this, isn't there yet to play. He's play, put out Dirty Mind. I think it happens in 1981. Is is uh, MTV and all the Dirty Mind comes out? Then Dirty Mind's not a big album, so you Correct. could understand not playing. That's a good it. point. But yeah, but there's no black music right. at all on MTV at first. Uh, not necessarily intended until a few years later when Walter Yetnikoff, who is the president of the very famous like. Uh, president of CBS Records portrayed so much in that book Hitman kind of threatens to boycott and not allow any of his music 
their, their, their albums to be played on MTV if they don't cut it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in, in the year after that, both Michael Jackson and then Prince get played on it. But that's three years later. Sure. Or, you know, it's eight, that's 83. But now it's the late 70s. And this may be the unintended backlash of the... Uh, the unintended result of the backlash against disco is that black music and white music have become very, very segregated. Uh in at New least York, on the radio. B- yeah, we had BLS in, in New York to play yeah. all the black music. And you also have a and, pretty um, nascent scene. You have the the new hip-hop scene, which is starting in the late 70s in New York, which is a very correct. powerful scene, but not represented at all in mainstream media. Yeah, not yet. And in the radio. And then you have white music, which is getting played on the radio. And there's this real separation. The bands aren't integrated. The people aren't. It's, the music isn't. And it's just not something we're hearing. Plus, we up until that point... It hadn't been since the 60s in which dance music had been provocative, lyrically challenging, or, or something that there were, there were no messages in it. Well, there were, it were, in the time of disco, there were some of them. Some of them. But for the most part, there was, no, there was not that marriage of great dance music like Sly and the Family Stone that also had it underlying social message for black communities, white communities, young people, older people. It kind of got lost. I, I think Prince, if you're getting there, I know we are, kind of fits into that too because he was able to infuse some of his personality in there and some of his philosophies on these, these early records, which were shocking to a lot of us that had just dismissed disco by that point because we were just sick of it. Well, I'm not sure it's that dance music doesn't have those messages as much as it is that the, we're not listening to that music after a certain point. I, I'm just not sure... About that generalization, but uh, I'd have to go look. I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I just, I'm not certain. Like the biggest hits, like Donna Summer's. Well, the biggest, biggest hits, hits but, they're, or... but the, the mainstream radio isn't playing. No, they're not. The biggest hits of it's black music point. once the disco thing happens. The Donna Summer stuff's not that, but there's certainly lyrics in those. And by the way, those I love Staying Donna Alive song. <laughs> in those Bee Gees songs, there's stuff sure. going on in those for the, sure. So they I mean, had Staying Alive structure. itself is a music about life on the streets in New York. Right, they had structure about, because it was supposed to be about the film. They had structure yeah. to that, you know, which yeah. is why you and I both love those songs. Yeah, they have the dual thing. But anyway, please continue. Um, just it's important to establish because this is the world that Prince comes into in 78 when or in yeah, 78 when For You comes out uh, which is his first album he's as you said was he 18 years old he was 18, 18 when he wrote it and, and produced it. it was 19 when it came out and they were they were promoting him as a wunderkind kind of like the new Stevie Wonder and he somehow negotiates having full control here's a 19 year old kid they wanted to give him I think Maurice Williams from uh from Earth, Wind, and Fire as his producer or something like that. And he said, absolutely Maurice not. White. Uh, I'm sorry. But they Maurice do White. send a producer with him, and he goes to work. I think they go to the record plant in Sausalito. They do send a producer Correct. with him. But as he puts it, uh, one of the other guys that was there, his manager, and I can't remember his name, was Cavallo. I can't remember his name, but he yeah, says, yeah. he says, uh, it, Prince just wore this guy down. It was like, it was kind of brutal for him because <laughs> I don't know if I took notes on this at all. And then he went over budget. He, he recorded this record for a long time. For a first 19 year old kid, Warner Brothers Records, they give him full control and then he, he blows over the budget for well, the he's Well, he's layering 20 tracks of vocals on things and he's doing it in the studio, not in his own place, so it costs money. Yep. And, uh, the, I mean, none of the record really sticks with me. We talked about playing some stuff on it, but what it is really significant for, it's the first place you, the world is introduced to the phrase, which is important later, produced, arranged, composed, and performed by Prince. Right. That plays particular all phrase, the instruments on it. Because he does. He plays everything. 
on it. Uh, Does all the vocal uh, overdubs, four or five part harmonies. That come th- the record opens up with him doing like this Beach Boys thing. More than four or five part harmonies. Yeah, in place. there's like twelve and fourteen. And he's using. Yeah. And I mentioned this before. We went. I just wanted to. We're not going to play anything off for you. I recommend listening to it if you get turned on by Prince here. You can go back to see the foundation. But what he's doing on that record is he's using these walls of keyboards to create sounds that Earth, Wind, and Fire and Commodores are getting getting with horns and guitars, and, and he does it all just by himself on that record. It's very impressive. The songs are not there yet. His falsetto is still not very uh, confident yet. And it doesn't give you any of the things you're going to hear on his second record when he decides he doesn't want to be pigeonholed as a black artist because exactly what you're saying, that black artists are being put in the corner. This is this music, and this is who listens to this music. Prince wanted to be the music for everyone. Well, and there's also stuff on that album, like on that song, what's it called, I'm Yours, where there's guitar shredding. Oh, yes. That, that, that is, uh, could be the envy of any heavy metal fan, heavy metal guitar player. And because this is a big part of Prince, he's just not a part of straight-up black music. He's influenced by so many different kinds of things as a young man, and That'll become crystal clear by the time Dirty Mind comes out uh, two years later. Right. But uh, it becomes pretty clear because the thing, and this is the thing that, that sticks out for me, no matter what Prince is doing, no matter which album, no matter which style, no matter what else he's playing, what instruments it's on, he is the greatest songwriter and his, he has such melody. His melody, his sense of melody is every bit as attuned as someone like Paul McCartney's. And that is what comes starts to come through right away on the second record because he's writing these hooks that are undeniable on some of the songs. Yes. Like, I mean, the, the album in 1979, Prince, is not as good a record as Dirty Mind at all. But some of the songs on it are every bit as good as the songs on Dirty Mind and they begin to show you this sense of melody that is present in New Wave, in, in pop uh rock and roll, you know, classic rock. He's got this sense of melody that is so powerful that it overrides whatever you may or may not, whatever may or may not appeal to you stylistically because you can't get the tune out of your head. And that's true. (laughs) Uh, Two or three songs on the second album, Prince, in 1979, they're just so hooky, you can't stop. Prince Rogers Nelson, for me, I think is one of the most important musicians of the 20th century, especially American musicians, clearly the last 20 years of it, from 1980 to 2000. But I also think he is the first lineage for me, not songwriting and everything, but he's the first lineage. Everybody says, oh, the new Beatles, the new Beatles. He did things that, that we revere the Beatles for the most, which is what Adam just said, which is great songs with fantastic musicianship, creating myths and worlds with it, changing and challenging you with every record as we go through these songs and these records you'll see just the way rubber soul and revolver and sergeant peppers did prince is doing those things he's challenging and he's taking in new fans because he's bringing in the disco fans he's bringing in the rock fans he's bringing in the pop fans he creates this persona and he does it in such a wonderful way and he was revered by everyone here's a guy who miles davis fought to go hang out with and, and talk to. Stevie Wonder talked about. Eric Clapton said, when someone said, what does it feel like to be the greatest guitar player in the world? He goes, I don't know, ask Prince. This is what I'm talking about with this guy. In the last 20 years of the 20th century, if, as far as I'm concerned, the reason why we're dedicating all these podcasts and we're talking so reverentially about him is that it's real. This stuff was very important. It influenced a lot of bands and music, and he was never wrote. This guy constantly evolved. It was incredible. 
Well, there's something that people, um, friends of mine who are older than me, who talk about their experience in the 60s as Beatles fans. And what one of the things they describe over and over again is you have no idea what it was like to have this band make a record and then the next year make a new record that was so different and that pushed things forward so much and that you never knew what to expect and yet every one of them was just as good. And then the next year they'd make another record that was nothing anyone had ever heard before and was so different and so revolutionary and they did it year after year, never repeating, never going back, always pushing forward, always developing new ways of making music, new ways of writing songs. And it was uh, being a Beatles fan in the 60s, from what I hear, was this incredible experience. And that is, for me, what me being a Prince fan was like in yep. the 80s as a young guy. You waited and waited, and then he came out and shocked you. Well, because like, every record was this? so different from the one before yes. it. They pushed forward into new areas each time. He just seemed to be exploring it. The other side of it that I want to mention is that, like, I've talked to you several times about these guys that I call the great triple threats in rock and roll. The more incredible, the incredible musicians who were great writers, uh, singers and players guys like on their instruments uh jimmy hendrix richard thompson uh to a certain extent uh say elton john and right. well, uh stevie wonder for sure played and stevie wonder yeah and uh eric clapton the guys who could do it all well what do you call a guy they played a lot of these guys played sang wrote and played well in guitar or piano in elton john's case but what about the guys like prince or to a certain extent stevie wonder too sure. who who are Better guitar players than everyone else, better songwriters, better singers, better arrangers, better piano players, as we'll show you some in the next couple of weeks. He's the best piano player on earth for a while there. It's it just, and you don't even think about it because it's just, he's not doing it in a showy way. It's just that it's, an, it, he's the best synth player. He's, he's better at composing. He's a better drummer than anybody and a bass player. Incredible. He's a better composer. He, he takes these techniques later on, uh, on albums like, 1999 where the Lin drum has been invented and he becomes so his facility and it becomes so good that he doesn't even bother playing drums anymore and it, you don't notice it because it's uh, so organic his synthesizer work is so creative that it doesn't matter that it's a synthesizer he does it all and it all really starts for me right here in 1979 yes and and the reason the thing I say he has in common with the Beatles the reason it works no matter what he's doing is the melody He's a better songwriter and a better, better melodicist than anyone. And that, no matter what the song is, no matter what the style is, if you can't get the hook out of your head, it works. You know, and, no and that's why it crosses all barriers, all races, all everything else, because you cannot get the tune out of your head. And that, that to me, starts... There are, there's really good stuff as far as his playing and everything else on the first album, but... When, when when for you comes out, I mean when Prince the second album comes out, which is titled Prince by the way yeah. on purpose because he's in, in many ways for years he never considered for you his first record he considered this his first record and he puts the very first song on this record, which was a big hit his first real hit yeah. and a song in which incorporates for me a little bit of new wave, a little bit of funk, a little bit of pop, a little bit of disco it's all in there in essence right out of the gate he hits you with. This is what I am going to be. This is what you're going to get from me for the next decade and more. Yeah, on the, for the next 30 years or so. The yeah. next 30 years. But specifically in the 80s when he just, in my mind, except for maybe Michael Jackson and for that one year and a half, Bruce Springsteen just dominates the decade. Dominates it. We're going we're gonna to show you. Not only dominates it in his musicality, his ability to great, great songs, arrange them, but write songs for everyone else, for having people cover his songs, even when before he becomes really famous, 
And then later on, people picking up on songs and him grabbing people and becoming like a director in a sense. You know, a lot has been said over the years about the Memphis sound, Stax and, and, and Sun Records, uh, you know, the, the sound of uh, Seattle sound or the Nashville sound. There was a thing for a while, the Minnesota, the Minneapolis sound. You know what the Minneapolis sound was? It was Prince. He wrote all those songs, brought all those bands together, controlled them like this amazing Svengali, and gave them wonderful careers. Now that we've sort of set you up on where it was, let's get to some music. Let's uh, go. So let's start with what we were talking about. The first song yep. on his second album, or maybe in his mind his first album, Prince in 1979, is I Want to Be Your Lover. But that I- 
you also get uh, his his willingness on that song, a single, to just like I'm gonna play this out for five minutes <laughs> because I can fuck around. I can fuck I can fuck with this guitar. I can fuck with this keyboard. I got a groove that'll that'll knock you out. So you know he he's always willing to do that. He's not. Except on Dirty Minds, the guy who really says, you know what, everything he needs to be two and a half to three minutes long. Right. He'll take a five, he'll make five minutes or six out of almost right. in that one. And that, that's the album track, the opening track. That's the 20 year old Prince um, with I Want to Be Your Lover, which was a big hit on urban radio in 79. It crossed over a little bit, I think, into the pop stratosphere, but you could see what he's doing there. First of all, that great. That thing he used to go into all the time when I used to see him play live. They would just, in the middle of another song, they would just kick into that little part, and it would be really cool to riff off of that. But he's playing the bass on that, the guitars, the wall of keyboards, all these really cool, even on the I Want to Be Your Lover, like when it goes up, and you hear him put those little synth lines that, get, that are just like strings that, that lead the melody, as, as you were saying earlier, which is so beautiful. And, and he's, also, he's also incorporating his, his sexual philosophy, which he will he will continue to drive home the most provocative sexual writer of uh, probably the latter half of the 20th century, uh, constantly infusing that into his work when he sings, I want to be your lover. He's immediately setting up that character that he will be over the next 20, 25, 30, 40 years. And he will, he will, he will talk about it in the most raw and direct ways. The kind of thing that would get the PMRC all riled up in years to come. But, it's all right there. The very first track of this of this uh, album. I want to be the only one who makes you come. Uh, yeah, the only running. One come for, come and then he running. says, "Running." I want to be the only one that makes you come running. <laughs> but he's and, got that pause there. You know? Yeah, I love it. And uh, you know, and that's that. Of course, is 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 hidden in the history of rock and and soul, and certainly blues music. All these euphemisms for sexuality. But Prince got rid of all of that, and you'll see as we go along. But in there, it's his very first song on an album that he considers his first, and it's really when he took control of his image and his life and his music and his career, and it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of pop rock songwriting. Yeah, I mean, it, gets, it does pretty well on the charts. It's, it's a R, number one on, on R&B. R&B, huge. It's, yeah. uh, it's number 11 on, on Billboard Hot 100. So, that's, I mean, it, that's the, it, it's for a while there. Yeah, I guess It's the right. best he does until maybe... I don't know, maybe a little red Corvette later on. Yeah, probably that's a good one. point. Yep. Um, but for a while, though, this is his biggest song by far, I would yes. think. Yes, you're right. You're right. Now, the second song on this record is, I argue, his first rock and roll song with rock and roll basis. Now, there's a song later on in this, in, on this record, which is really he dives in the deep end. But here's where that song has a funk sensibility and a dance. That's a dance track with some pop sensibilities in there. But this song to me is a balls out rock and roll song. And it even takes, and I said this to Adam before we, we, we sat down to do the podcast, that this album to me reminds me of Prince kind of listening to everything. As we said before, he was a huge Joni Mitchell fan when he was a kid, uh, big fan of Santana, loved the Beatles, but also loved Earth, Wind & Fire and Stevie Wonder and, and, and Commodores. But here you hear, I think I hear some big keyboard bands like Sticks or, you know, things like that, that he's infusing in this song that is completely alien to what black music is doing at the time. That's why we were talking about disco. That's why I think you brought that up at the beginning, and it's an excellent way to set it up because he's shocking the very fans that Warner Brothers wants him to appeal to, but he wants to drag them out of this singular, you're just a black act, you're just an urban act, you're just a soul act, you're just a disco act, into a different world. And I think this song does it beautifully, not to mention a fucking ass, another ass-kicking guitar solo. Yeah, I mean, the guitars on this album are more prominent than they will be 
the first few albums, he's doing more with the guitars. The synths and the keyboards are here, but not as prominent as they will be later on, like 1999. Yes. But it, his, he really was establishing his bona fides as a guitar player, in his mind, I think, early on. This is also the only song on this, the only song on this entire album that even features another person on it. And I think Andre Simone sings uh, the background vocals on this song, I'm pretty sure. But it's the only thing on the record that has another person on it. Right. Andre Simone, a buddy of his that played in a lot of bands. Uh, what was the name of Fourth Avenue? What was the name of the band that they had when they were kids that uh, Morris Day was in? They were oh. like teenagers. I forget the name of that band. But they were in this band when they were kids. And I think Andre Simone is like a friend of his from Minneapolis. He's the guitar player yeah. in the touring band before, yeah. before the revolution. Uh, sure. And he's, he's the bass guitar player in recording. Uh, bass in, he plays bass in the band before he's the revolution. Before yeah, Mark right. Brown or Brown Mark comes into the Correct, band. Right. He's the bass player. Yep. And he writes songs for like Jody Watley and other people later on. Uh, should we play it? Let's play it. Why do you want to treat me so bad?
<laughs> love that harmony guitar part at the end. You know, you have to remember, too, not only did we, we set up the whole era of disco, but in rock music, the year before this came out, Eddie Van Halen woke everybody up. Because for a while there, punk changed the concept of rock music because, as, as Gene Simmons once said in the 70s, rock lost its role somewhere along the way. And there was a lot of rock music that didn't have the soul that, that was originated from Little Richard and these other people. And you've mentioned this record really does give, take you back to that. And it's a concept of somebody, of, of a, a, a black kid who is seeped in all that soul and funk, but also rock and roll, and he's bringing it back to the groove because Prince always said, if it doesn't groove, I can't do it. So it's a rock and roll song, but it's, in the, it's steeped in the traditional sounds of rock and roll. So, and that's a little bit what Eddie Van Halen did and Van Halen the band in 78 because there's some really cool bebop and, 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 and cool old rock and roll sounds to the shredding guitar of Eddie Van Halen, and I hear a lot of that in that song. Well, and also he's got that that the main lick to that song it, that with the the two guitars playing in the tight harmony that reminds me of like uh, Thin Lizzy. Oh yeah, we were talking about that. That yes. sort of that, that's very much a '70s guitar trick. The the dueling guitars, the Thin Lizzy, or uh, is it T Rex does that at times or Mott the Hoop? I just that those harmony guitar Hoopa, licks. Yes. Um, yep. it's a very a traditionalist like. 70s rock thing too uh, that's yes. going on there yes and I, and I love that song it's, it's probably my favorite song on that record even when considering uh, I Want to Be Your Lover um, now that's that's Prince Dippin not his toe I would say he's up to his calf in the rock and roll idiom we're not going to play it because we don't really love the song per se. We played, I believe, the two best songs of this record. It's a wonderful record. It's got a lot of different styles. Bambi is a full-out Aerosmith rock and roll song. All, I mean, he's playing the drums on this too, so he's not only playing funky guitar, but heavy guitar, heavy bass lines, real rocking guitar. It's just he's not as comfortable as he will eventually be with songs like Darling Nikki and I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man later in, his, in the 80s. But it's the first real f- formulated rock and roll song on this record. And... He also has a song on this record that was so good and such a pop staple that one of his heroes from Rufus ended up covering. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're going to talk about throughout this, not just his own work, and not just, but he wrote for other people. In the, he wrote them as, as he would just create bands uh, and, and write and play all the music on their records except for the vocals. Uh, yeah. And he would also, yes. some of the biggest hits of the time for different artists were actually Prince songs. And the first one of those, yes. that, or the earliest of, that he wrote, I think, and this album actually comes out for her in 1984, is Shaka Khan's uh, album, uh, I Feel For You, yeah, the song I Feel, I Feel For, for You, you right. uh, which is in 84. But he originally offered this song, and I Want to Be Your Lover, to Patrice Russian, who sings uh, Forget Me Nots, because oh, he had a yeah, crush yeah. on her. And uh, yeah. I Want to Be Your Lover was actually hit, written to her. Oh, I didn't know And that. he offered her that song... And I feel for you, and she turned them down. This song was eventually played. Uh, the, the the Pointer Sisters recorded it first on their album in '84. So excited, but it came out later that year on Shaka Khan's record, and uh, it became a massive, massive hit. Right, you and know, uh, he was a big fan of, of as I mentioned, Rufus, yeah, Rufus when he was Shaka younger. Khan, that, they're yeah. the ones that did. Uh, good. Remember that song? Oh, Tell Rob, I love that album. Rags to Rufus is one of my favorite records. It's a fantastic record. It's a Rags great record. Rufus. When this came out on her, one of the things that's great about this song on her record is it features the iconic rap, Shaka Khan, let me love you, let me love you, Shaka Khan, Shaka yeah, Khan, yeah, let yeah. me love you, that's all I want to do, uh, which is <laughs> Melly Mel of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Nice job. Uh, and also Stevie Wonder's insane chromatic harmonica playing. Uh, 
Uh, but right. throughout his career, he's going to write songs that are career making for other people. And the first one that really occurs is right here. Uh, even though she's already a star, uh, this is a big. This hit, blows though. her back up again in the eighties. Yes. She's a star in the seventies, but this blows Shaka Khan up through the roof. And in the by 80s. the way, this video is big. So this is a classic example of the the changeover to playing black artists. Yeah, by the time MTV. this came out in nineteen eighty four, MTV was doing that. By right. then, this yeah, is a massive thriller and, yeah. uh, a video. Sure, um, it was. But let's check it out. This is from uh, her album "I Feel for You" in nineteen eighty four. This is Shaka Khan with Melly Mel and Stevie Wonder playing Prince's song, which is on side two. On of side two, Prince. Of Prince. Yep, I feel for you. Chuck a chuck 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 a gun, chuck a gun, chuck a gun, chuck a gun, chuck a gun. Let me rock it, let me rock it, chuck a gun. Let me rock it, that's all I wanna do. Chuck a gun, let me rock it, let me rock it, chuck a gun. Let me rock it, let me feel for you. Chuck a gun, what you tell me, what you wanna do? Do you feel for me the way I feel for you? Chuck a gun, let me tell you what I wanna do. I wanna love you, wanna hug you, wanna squeeze you too. Let me take it in my arm, let me feel you with my charm, chucker. 'Cause you know that I'm the one to keep you warm, chucker. I make it more than just a physical dream. I wanna rock you, chucker, baby, 'cause you make me wanna scream.
say how absolutely poetically perfect that is that Stevie Wonder is wailing all over that record Uh, because really the only thing that comes close to Prince's dominance in the late 20th century is what Stevie Wonder did for that four or five year period in the 1970s which is unparalleled unparalleled he's playing every instrument on the records just like Prince he's writing these incredible songs wonderful melodies he's singing his ass off he's got great bands He's putting on wonderful shows as a live performer. We haven't even talked about that yet because Prince hasn't quite yet become the performer he will become. But it's all bedrocked right here on this record. And, and I always loved that version of that song. I had heard that first before I went back and discovered the earlier Prince stuff because uh, I didn't really – I was turned on just like you by Dirty Mind later on. Uh, so this record I kind of got after the whole Purple Rain period. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And I was just telling Adam that I was playing. It just seems to me – this record, and there's a few of them as we go along, is superior to his version, even though I love his version. And it's all there, all those little horn blasts or the keyboard blasts they got there and that cool little riff part. And, of course, the melody is all there. But she did a fantastic job with that. Oh, no, that's that's a lot of the great Prince songs that become hits for other people. I mean, in this case, it actually is a song that was on one of his records. But a lot of times he's just sending them to other people or they're asking for songs. Right. And the versions he records are... Uh, Work a day. They're not. They're not meant to be singles. They're they're maps for the instrumentation he wants, or the the counter melodies, and the vocals are laid down more than they're really passionately sung. Right. And There's a we, great album, the yes. originals record that just came out a little yes. while ago, which which has all a lot of those songs like Manic Monday, Nothing Compares to You, uh, Sex Shooter, which was the Vanity Six song. Right. Um, right. That he wrote for other people. Uh, that Martika one. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. Love Thy Will Be Done. Yes. Um, and, and what you hear from those versions is he's brilliant. And a lot of the songs are laid out for those people, like literally what he wanted everyone to play. But they're, they're sung like he's laying down a melody 
line for someone to follow more than they are like Prince singing Prince songs. You know, right. he, they they they're not meant to be uh, released, and and it's really cool to get to hear them on that record. It was just released last year, I think. Originals, yes. But it's uh, but there. It's also clear that they weren't meant for. Uh, yeah, and I think he probably would be appalled that that after his death that 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 these things are coming out now. Yeah. This is, he didn't mean for anybody to hear this stuff. But as fans, we want to hear them, you know. And I will say this: as we move on here, we have to point out that at this point, Prince has established himself as a major artist at a very very young age, and he's really mapping himself out here a career that he wants to be in. And Adam mentioned this earlier, and this is very important to note. When Prince would play with other musicians, which he will start to do now, coming with this record forward that we're about to play, he, he's the best musician there. Well, so not only is he writing and producing these things, but Jimmy Jam and Je- Terry Lewis talk about this from the time and later on producers of great stuff like you know the, the Jan- Jackson Janet Jackson records. stuff. And you know, Jimmy Jam would be like, he would just come in the studio and be like, it goes like this. And then we would play it, and you'd go back and go, fuck, I don't want to play in front of this guy. Because <laughs> well, he, he should just do it, you know? Yeah, well, and, and largely, there aren't other musicians in the studio with him. It, it, not for it, this record, really, or even, the next Even, one, even. for not many of the next two or three records, he'll have people in there. You know, Des Dickerson occasionally, a little bit right. here and there. Matt Fink. Uh, Matt Fink, Dr. Lisa, Fink, Lisa uh, when Coleman. he's in the Revolution. Yep. Uh, Lisa Coleman. Uh, but it's like they, those three people, and occasionally Morris Day, would come in. But largely, it was like I want you to do this one thing, or he, or as one of them put, I think Matt Fink or said it at one point, it was like a reward getting to play on something. Like you'd done something good in, in rehearsals that week, and you got a reward that you got to play on something. Yeah. But like most of it is all him, and we'll tell you when someone else. Because on these, it is the exception rather than the rule when there's anyone else playing on anything for the next few years for Prince, and we'll tell you when it happens because it is, it is, uh, it matters because it's mostly not the case. It's almost all. What you're going to hear is just Prince. Right. Um, and the second thing I want to say real quick is that what you were talking about before about him burning out the engineer for For You when he was 19 years old, he will do that for the rest of his career. People had a hard time keeping up with him. He had his own engineers on call years later where they would – 2 o'clock in the morning, I got something. You have to come and help me lay this down. And he just was furious over from, – from here on, he will be putting out a record every year in a period where people put out a record every two or three years well, we've only put out at most every three years, and we've sort of slowed that down a lot lately. Right, but that's but kind of like the norm. You the know, most we ever did was that, though. But you know, back in the day, we're talking about the Beatles. They put out two great records a year. Stones did the same thing in the 60s. But by the time the late 70s and 80s came around, you put a record out, and you waited a couple of years. Let the singles kind of breathe. He wanted This is the fight he had with Warner Brothers later in his career and changed his name to the symbol because he wanted to get out from under that. He wanted to record two or three triple albums a year, and it was just too much for Warner Brothers. And But he just was percolating that's why he, he created these other bands so it's just starting to begin right now in 79 and 80 and listen he's going to really blow up and he's going to catch the eye of the rolling stone magazines and the crawdaddy magazines and the nme magazines and this next re- next record he puts out in 1980 is going to be voted record of the year all the way across the critics absolutely lost their shit for dirty mind yeah he goes home I don't think he's intending to go home and record this record in his home studio, uh, but he does, largely because what he does is he puts together the demo for the record and then is told by other people and decides himself not to re-record it. That, that, yeah. that, that's, that this entire record, which is so groundbreaking, was really the demo for the record he was planning to make. Right. You know, but his own recording is so good 
It is. That he decides not to do anything else with it, so that they, they just put this out. And he meant this to be a banned record, not to play on the record, but he meant that, maybe he did, but he, this, there's a, if, you, if you pull out the inside sleeve of the record, there's the band that he will tour with. This was his first major tour. This is the first time that he will go out and support something, and, and you know, that's the whole time with the, 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 the panties and the, the lingerie he used to wear and the long jacket with the Rude Boy thing. And he fronted a band, played his Telecaster. Button, so yeah. The, yeah, the Rude Boy button. And he, he was building this to be a rock and roll, his first real rock and roll, new wave. He takes on this new wave persona. He gets rid of the afro. He gets rid of the sequence. He gets rid of that kind of imagery of the 70s. But he does get the, the bouffant, new wave hairdo, yes. adamant kind of hairdo and as you said and I think it's important on the cover of that record he's wearing panties kind of (laughs) and this long uh, coat but that coat has a rude boy button on the front of it the the the, what do you call it the checkerboard uh, ska rude boy button to say you know which is a kind of music that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be hearing from a funk player but it's his way of saying you can expect it from me right Um, and he makes this record and right off the bat it starts off with a song which is the first thing you hear him co-writing with anyone which is that Matt Fink Dr. Fink came up with the keyboard part. They were jamming, right? And it's the only thing anyone else plays on on this record, I think. <laughs> uh, there might be some vocals somewhere, but I think it's the only instrument anyone else plays on the record is his keys on this song. It's got an unbelievable guitar sound, which is uh, the sound that is all over this record, which sounds like someone's playing like well-tuned rubber bands to me. It is completely effect-free. There's no reverb. So there might be reverb. It doesn't sound like there's any effects no. on it at all. It literally sounds like someone has tuned rubber bands. They sound so cool and sparse. No and you hear everything he plays on them. It's, um, a, it's, a, it's his clean Telecaster that he would play for the rest of his life. He plays it on Purple Rain. He plays it, you know, all the time. Uh, even at the end when I saw him, like, even in the 2010, 2011, he was still playing that guitar. And it's just clean, as you said. And the keyboards... There's a lot more – I don't know if you – this is my observation about this record. There's a lot more space. There's not – because they were demos, there's not a lot of walls of keyboard building as we heard in, in, uh, in I Want to Be Your Lover. It's just grooves straight ahead. And you could picture he's – for the very first song, which is the title track, Dirty Mind, he's creating something that you would sound so cool live with a band. It's got great stops and starts, dynamics. I don't know if you feel that way, but I feel like this album's got a lot of space in it. I oh think my this god! It's, so, it's so sparse. It doesn't have those walls of keyboards like you're talking about. It has the keyboards are very specific, and the guitar parts are very specific, and they're incredible. Also, it's very much you can feel him saying, "Okay, I've had some singles that did pretty well on the last record. I didn't reach a lot of the people I wanted to reach, which is those white people uh, as well in the mm-hmm. middle. I love that music. They're not hearing it because of the way I'm dressing this up. So I'm going to do some things. I'm going to like this is going to be a guitar record, and you're going to hear that guitar real stripped down. In a lot of ways, it sounds like a Cars record. Yes, it sounds very much the 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 guitar parts remind me of the stripped down guitars that we were listening to when we were listening to the first Cars album. Yes, there's not a lot of as much other stuff. Around, there's even less stuff around them than there's on that album. But it's still those really stripped down parts that you're you're meant to listen to exactly what he's playing, right? And not hear a wall of something. It's very new wave. It's a little bit of English beat. It's a little bit of that. A little bit of squeeze. It's got a little bit of all the different things that were happening in England at the time. And and he and he connects with that with the cover of the album. And yeah, the absolutely. And he's doing this interesting thing where he's playing against it, where he's playing the muscular male maybe even macho-ness of a stripped-down guitar band against the falsetto voice singing all these sexual things. You know, if Prince... Prince must have popped up. You're talking about 1980 right now, so it's the end of the 70s in a way. And with the 
backlash against black music and also gay homosexual stuff that was going on, Prince must have popped up on everyone's, although I don't think it existed yet as a concept, gaydar. Everyone must have been wondering if this Prince guy was gay because of the way he sang. And he played there was off a, of that. The effeminate nature of that. And he's buying into that and playing off it because right. he's getting this... But he's also forcing you to look at both sides. It's ultra-sexual in a male way, but not just in a male way. And that'll come up in lyrics all over this record about, all like... Over it. Whatever you're thinking, you're just limiting yourself. And I'm going to show you that on this record. And he hits you right in the face with this record. And he starts it off by a stomping kick, which for a couple albums, he loved to start you off with just a stomping gum, gum, gum. He does the same thing on, on Controversy. It starts off with a kick drum just like that. Yes, yes. And he, want, he starts you off with a stomping kick drum, almost this robo-funk rock and roll, like sure. a metronome. It's just really straight hi-hat and snare and some cymbals. There's no tom fills in this song at all, I don't no, think. No. And the guitar is so straight. It, like I said, it reminds you of a Cars song. And the lyric, you say you got a dirty mind. I mean, he wants to talk about sex. He wants to talk about it while playing rock and roll guitar, but in a falsetto, almost feminine voice. There's an androgyny there in the lineage of David Bowie and Mark Bolin, Lou Reed. It's all in there. All throughout this record, he's going to challenge you with what are questions of maleness, questions of sexuality, questions of what's right to talk about sexually. He'll talk about things that people have only been talking about metaphorically before this. He'll talk about them specifically and on this direct, album. And direct. As I was saying before, he's the first direct sexual rock and roll. Yes, and he'll still use the metaphors in other ways. Like, let's face it, Raspberry Beret and Little Red Corvette are both metaphors for someone's clit. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're brilliant metaphors for clits, it's you know? True. But... But the songs aren't just about clits. They're about much more than that later yes. on. But on this album, they're very much about sex. But they're also about sexuality and the roles and how we view sexuality in our culture. Because he's backlashing against the backlash of places on this record. Yep. It starts right off with his proposition of the world and everyone on Dirty Mind. Um, it's a political statement is what it is. So check it out. It's just the stripped down guitars, Dr. Fink's keyboard line Great that inspired line. the song. And Prince just doing it everything else by himself. This is Dirty Mind, 1980.
that, that's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece in statement. You know, it, first of all, the record's called Dirty Mind. The first song is Dirty Mind. He's introducing you into a world that you're about to get hit in the face with. A lot of sexual themes. But it, it's just so poppy and great. And, and there's that one moment we were talking about the androgyny. We talked about the glam stuff, the moth, the hoople, and the, the you know, right, right there, I just all of a sudden out of nowhere heard, you know, uh, bang a gun, get it on. It's all in there, you know, with that great keyboard that he just lets establish the beginning of the record. Wonderful job. It's just, it's a great song, but it's a great way to introduce you to an album that completely put him on the map as a different, an artist to be reckoned with. Yeah, and I, I think the way he plays the things against each other, he takes... He strips back. He has the same. The melodies are good on, uh, on on the album before on Prince, yeah, Prince on, like yeah. on uh, "Wish I, I Want to Be Your Lover" and "Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad." But he strips a lot of the things back. All the synth lines that were playing the horn parts, he's got all of them out of there, so he can just strip it down to the simple rock and roll. But I'm gonna play you some guitar. I'm gonna play you this keyboard line. That's really everything he plays is very specific on this record. I, one person said it's like combines this like rock and roll feeling against this stripped down new wave thing, and then on top of it all, he floats like Smokey Robinson's falsetto romanticism against Richard Pryor's like vulgar street poetry. I, I can't remember where I read that. I think it's a it's Rolling Stone good. thing that I read where he's talking about like yeah, it, that that voice on the top is completing is combining the thoughts and the challenging social mores of Richard Pryor, all done in the voice, the beautiful romantic voice of Smokey Robinson. Yeah. With his falsetto, and it's a, it's a very powerful combination right then. Yeah. Um, I remember Christogal lost his mind. I don't know if he was writing for Rolling Stone at the time, but he really lost his mind. He, he said, like, forget the 1980s. This is the best record of the 80s. And the 80s were only about a few months old at the time. But he is introducing a new kind of sound. Oh, he said something about, I remember the quote from him. It's something about, like, Mick Jagger could, as far as, like, sexual yes. come-ons of the leads, Mick Jagger could pack up his dick and go home. Yeah, that that was Christogal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's exactly reading that, that article. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um... Yeah, and I was going to say, funnily enough, off of this record, Jagger calls up Prince and asks them to, to open for them on their 81 tour in America. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But yeah. it's when he's coming out in his high heels and his, his little bikini and his jacket. And the Stones fans are not big fans. But Jagger was always on the cutting edge of black music from the 60s, early 60s on, all the way through the 70s. And, and he just lost it for Prince. He's like, this guy is the future. And yeah, he's yeah. right. Yeah. And the second song on this is where he won't, even more than that first one, where he's really reaching to the the rock and roll audience for where yes. he really wants that people in the middle to hear because it, it's a perfect rock and roll song. Uh, it's the most pop song. It's it's covered uh, on her first album by Cyndi Lauper, yeah. uh, who very interestingly doesn't change the pronouns, so it comes off as very interestingly multisexual on it. Right, right. Uh, it's covered by Ian Matthews, the former singer of. Uh, Fairport Convention. He has a band called Hi-Fi in the late seventies, early eighties, or in the late in the early eighties at one point, and they cover it on their record too. Ani DeFranco yeah. also covered that, and uh, Prince liked it so much he asked her to play on a record in the early, uh, the late nineties. I think she's on uh, Rave. I think uh, until the Joy Fantastic on that record. But uh-huh. this, and he plays everything on this song. Oh, everything. And the keyboard solo in the middle of it is insane. He plays it's stripped down again. It's just guitar, bass, and a drum groove, and then this keyboard that he plays the living shit out of. That fucking solo in the middle is insane. It's great, and he yeah. also 
develops lyrically. You have the dirty mind. He's young still. He's 21, 22. He's just, just a kid still in the sense where he's still driven by that sort of that id. And he opens it up with dirty mind. I can't help it. I can't help it. And here he's sort of, it's the old rock and roll trope. Hey, you done me wrong. I don't care because I'm pretty progressive, but come on. You didn't have, even have the decency to change the sheets. You know? Well, that's not – it's not even so much – well, he, there's some lyrics in this is where he really starts to uh, – there were things in this song that were the ones that – because it's such a catchy song too that really got inside people's heads because you're listening to it. You can't stop listening to the tune and then you're like, he said what? Like the one you're just talking about, that uh, – it's not just – you let all my friends come over and meet, and you were so strange, you didn't have the decency to change the sheets. That's not only did his friends come over, but she fucked them all. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Or, or they slept with her. And the verse that, like, really, I think, blew people's minds. Well, then he, uh, the one he says later on, oh, girl, when you were mine, I used to let you wear all my clothes. And it's interesting, he's, uh, he's inserting ideas, a beginning of, of, like, transsexuality here. Sure. Of, of, uh, of, of that, and then the the one that really flipped people out. I never was the kind to make a fuss when he was there sleeping in between the two of us. I love that line, and you know, really, just even. I love you more now than when you were mine. Well, that's what really love is the, that of all the things that shocking are shocking in the song. The fact that it turns out to be a song about her sleeping with all of his friends. That the relationships that she leaves him for begins when they are having that. Like it starts off by them having a threesome, right? Because he's over there sleeping between the two of them. Whoever this guy is, right? But. The part that really makes it genius is the part that you – it is the part that without any shock value is the simple part. The part you just said is what really throughout Prince's career is what blows me away about him because I love you more than I did when you were mine. It's including in the song that's got a bunch of like fun and shocking lyrics <clears throat> the simple nuance of recognizing something very human about the way things are often more important to us only after we fucked up and lost them. That he's – Maybe wasn't so great when she was there, right? But now he really loves her that she's gone. He's kind of copping to it himself. I lo- without sort of making it a song about copping to it. He's not doing that. He's not making it a song about no. I was so wrong. But he gets it in there in the lyrics so that you see there's more depth to this than just a song about like fucking. No question. He's he- breaking social mores, but he wants you to know that it's a very real thing. That like is heartbroken. When you have something you've lost, you're loving a. Th- when you love something that you've already lost, though, like he's talking about, you're loving a thing. Or an idea. A it's concept. not really loving a person. No. The same as it would if he was there. And that's the kind of texture and depth that takes place in his songwriting that makes him... That's what, even if you don't notice it, makes him so fucking great. It's the little things in there that give three-dimensionality to these characters. And that's what I think he gets from Joni Mitchell. I really do. Oh, yes. And he's a huge Joni Mitchell fan. And I won't say the shocking stuff is just wallpaper because he is very much trying to knock everybody out of their social mores. He wants to reach to a rock and roll audience, but he doesn't necessarily want to do it by just writing plain rock and roll songs. He wants to write songs that knock you off your pedestal, that make you think about the way the world is changing in 1980 in so many different ways. But he's also, it's not just polemic. He's going to include things like, I love you more than I did when you were mine that make these songs so much deeper than just a polemic about sexuality that you should be waking up to. It's also about the flaws and the innate humanity of the character and the person he is. One of, one of my favorite stories in the uh, book about Joni Mitchell, um, Reckless Daughter, she talks about meeting Prince for the first time. And she used to see him when he was a kid. She said, all I remember is this little kid with, uh, with a giant afro in the front row of almost every gig when we, we played Minneapolis. And he plays a case of you to her. And if you think about his use of metaphor of the car, he does it all the way in the in the Dirty Mind, and you mentioned it in Little Red Corvette as a woman. Uh, later on, the Thunderbird used it in the Thunderbird in that uh, um, in that song Alphabet Street. 
he he's saying in there, I I want to I want to take you in my daddy's car, but it's really you I want to drive. Joni Mitchell is using a case of you using wine as something I could drink a case of you. I always thought that was I beer. Love that. Even or more beer. even more earthy and real because she's yes. Canadian. I always thought I could drink a case of you and uh, you know. But you know what I mean. Yeah, it's you know, like I do, taking I do. this thing, and I think he absolutely took that from because he gives you that little undercurrent of what you're talking about lyrically. That's not just a song about blatant sex. True, it separates him from the braggadocio of rap music or even the more you know uh, playful stuff like Brick House or something. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and not just you know the but the best rap music has that as well. Inside the braggadocio is other things it, that the people who saw it from the outside and only saw that were missing out on what was really going on in hip hop. And what culture missed out on is that a lot more people were seeing that than they thought. Yeah, that's uh, true. As we talked about a million times, when they finally started doing sound scan and, and recording what people were actually buying, it turned out the most popular record in America was was NWA. Right. You know, um, but here is Prince writing about a, a love triangle square. <laughs> Quadra, quadrangle, whatever you know, uh, oct, octa, octagon, Something. whatever it ends up there's being. A lot of there's a lot of people that come over. Um, it was just like a train. You let my friends come over and meet, and you were so strange. You didn't have a decency to change the sheet. I forgot to include that first line in that. Line yeah, I said it before. Bit, like it was just train. like a train. You yeah, know, yeah. like another vehicle. But also, like yeah. But I was gonna say it's like Henry Miller. It's like reading Henry Miller for the first time. You're like, whoa, what did he just? That what was that? You know, it's there, there's a strong progressive woman and he's trying to keep up with her and he can't do it he yeah. loses her and 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 he and he doesn't appreciate it until it's gone and he cops to that but without making it a whole song about his guilt over that he's still talking about something else and that's what that's what makes him supreme as a songwriter and on this song playing every fucking instrument with that same great that guitar sound on this record knocks me out and in order to play that guitar sound, you have to know exactly what you want to play and you have to play the shit out of it. It's got to be a perfectly composed part because it's too simple. There is no reverb and space taking up room and filling out the song if you don't play everything the way you want. If right. it's not brilliantly composed, it's not going to work, but it does work. It works. God, does it work. And these were quote-unquote demos. <laughs> yeah. So this is a Prince, bass, drums, keys, cool guitar. and guitar, yeah. and singing, When You Were Mine. you 
we have to mention the amazing call and response singing there. I mentioned it just when it started. I said, oh, yeah, there's background vocals. You know that he's, he's answering himself in his actual voice, not the falsetto. Yeah. Time. And, um, and, and he's a master. He's probably one of the greatest vocal arrangers ever, and he'll do things on the other records, as we'll get to, with, you know, ten-part harmonies that are so amazing that they make the dynamics of the song. But here, it's just two parts. And a call and response thing that is so good. It's so, good. so catchy. Just makes you want to play it over and sing along. Yeah, you can't help but sing along to it. Then there's that incredible keyboard solo that he puts in there. That it's like this classical thing that George Martin would have put in the middle of like "In My Life" uh, on the Beatles. And he's like screaming at the top of his range with it. You know what I mean? Oh As yeah, it goes the beginning on. of solo. Oh my god, so good. I mean, it's just it's mind numbing to think that this guy had this much control over everything he wanted to say and do at this early stage of his career and really just taking leaps and bounds with each record and this is his biggest leap to date and it will it will show you and it's a map and there's nobody no one knew this in 1980 but it's a map to where he will go in future records and he follows this song up so we basically play the first two songs of the record which are new wavy clean sparse a combination of a little bit of soul but a lot of rock and roll and new wave a little bit of punk, and then he comes up with a funk song because he does not, he does not give up on what he does so well. Yeah, "Do It All Night" is the uh, was actually the first single off the album before before "When You Are Mine" was a single. Uh, and I should mention that "When You Are Mine," which is the bigger hit on the record, is not that big a hit. That in a lot of ways he gets all the critical acclaim in the world for this record. Everyone reviews it as five stars. He ends up going on a Stones tour. But it's not a big hit. It's a much smaller... The record does not do nearly as well as Prince, the record before it did. When You Remind's not nearly as big a single as uh, I Want to Be Your Lover is. Uh, and they're a little discouraged by that. But it is all across the board five-star reviews. I remember it, it was the lead review in Rolling Stone that week. Yeah, I think it was the record of the out. year. And I mean, it's an incredible record, but it didn't get the popular response that. Well, he sh- he he did shuffle away a lot of his fans, who again had a hard time. Who uh, want to be your lover is a soul pop funk song. Yeah, there's nothing really. I mean, this next song is a little bit more in the ballpark, ballpark of that, well, but this what, has got to be shocking to quite a few people who liked. I want. Oh, be I'm sure lover. it was in, in a ground, but it's not groundbreaking. I, I just want to make it clear that as groundbreaking as it is, and as groundbreaking as the stuff on the next record is going to be. This isn't the success no, that the next exactly. record is going to be, and it's uh, just to make it clear, it's it's possible to to misremember how Dirty Mind existed in in popular culture as a critical thing. It's huge, right? But as a as a hits of culture, not as much. I remember it coming out. I remember the review in Rolling Stone. I don't really remember the record, and I didn't love it as much as I did. Controversy was the record that really got me into Prince, and I went back and discovered. Uh, uh, Dirty Mind after that and absolutely loved it. But at the time, Dirty Mind didn't make much of an impression on me either. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this is the first single anyways off the record. They don't actually open. I mean, so one of the things that you could tell as a record company they're trying to do, as much as they want him to release the demos and not put the regular record out, uh, not re-record it, they didn't open with When You Were Mine. They didn't put that as a first single. They still picked a single that was closer to the earlier funk R&B stuff. Yes. Um, and that's Do It All Night. It was also... Uh, the first song played every night on the tour, on the Dirty Mind tour, when they were opening for, uh, was it Rick James? They opened That's that right, year. they opened for Rick yeah, James. They spent the year opening for Rick James. That was a tough uh, year for Prince on the road, because Rick James did not treat him well. 
asked him on the tour because he loved him, but then, of course, was Rick James, and he was uh, very egocentric and had his control. Then he opens up for those couple of dates for the Stones, and he gets literally not only booed off the stage, people are throwing, like, M80s and bottles at them. They walk off the stage. I was at one of those Stones shows in, here in New Jersey. Uh, I think it was in Philly at the at the big giant bowl, the RFK Stadium, and Journey opened up that show. They had to escape. I don't know why they put Journey on this Oh, bill. because Prince wouldn't come back. Prince, they played the one gig, uh, I don't remember where it was, maybe L.A. I think it was L.A. And then they played... He went home. He, he left in the middle without finishing the show and went home. They, walked off the stage and went straight to a car and flew home to Minneapolis. Didn't want to come back. Des Dickerson calls him. Uh, Jagger and I think Jagger him. calls him yes. and somebody else, his manager as well. And they talk him into coming back and doing another show. But by that time, the, the fact that he got booed off stage and they threw stuff at him becomes... Uh, a well-known sort of news story and yeah. people actually get into it. And it becomes a little bit like the no disco thing. Him yes. showing up on stage in the weird outfits, a lot of the sort of like working class people, you know, let's face it, white people. Stones fans. It becomes a big guys. thing to throw things at him. They, they realize it and, and, and they're pelting him almost immediately. And so he leaves after that and says, basically, I'm never opening for anyone again. And never does. Never did. Um, and he goes home and, and uh, woodsheds and, and that turns out to be uh, controversy and then later in 1999 right, he goes right. in the studio and, and instead of he doesn't freak out too much over he just doesn't want to do it anymore and he goes home and works right and he continues um, to build this character that we're talking about but anyway this is the third track off of this record but the first single but his first foray on an album that's very groundbreaking that's in his funk idiom yeah do it all night
that's just a great funk dance song. Should have been a single. It was. It's a great song. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and he's playing a synthesizer. It's, it's much more uh, keyboard than guitar based than like most of the stuff on this record is. But he's playing that synthesizer with so much feeling. Uh, it doesn't come off as cold. He's got it working like a Farfisa organ almost. It's like he's got. He, he like yeah, he's playing shit. it like an organ. Like Billy Preston. It, he's controlling exactly what he wants to do with it, yes. which is what I think. He becomes a real master of working with these synths, where they don't come off as chilly or uh, austere like they do with like you know a lot of people are playing synthesizers right now, but they're usually couching it in music like New Order or Depeche Mode, where it's a lot more static. Right. A lot more cold. Mm-hmm. He's taking the synthesizer because he can make it sound exactly like he wants to make it, but he's playing it like an organ and he's playing it with all kinds of feeling. And like, it's got this jittery, fun, like the stuttering of the Dirty Mind keyboard, which Dr. Fink plays. But this one, too, he's got that, it's got it doing all kinds of stuff. Right. The one thing I noticed, and we'll get to it when we start diving into 1999, which is, is truly incredible keyboard masterpiece is that he's he's we've talked about it on this podcast i think we talked about it in one of the last couple is that there's a lot of keyboards that were used during the 1980s that are completely gone now no one uses them so when they are used it immediately brings you back to the 1980s these songs especially in 1999 have survived that he took the same stuff everybody else was using and 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 people think a flock of seagulls and they're like yeah that is so 1980s but i listen to this stuff and it sounds as fresh now as it did then well it's not dated because he's not just letting it sit there he's really playing the shit out of it yeah absolutely uh, it makes a difference you know the, the sound doesn't just sit there and right. just be a sound um uh the next song on the album we're gonna skip i actually we both love this song got a broken heart again but we just can't play everything on it. it's a great <laughs> it's got a like, 50s, soft rock yeah. 50s guitar song uh yeah. and it's got a great melody got a broken heart again yep it really shows you like prince's ability to take something like that you know, like a '50s doo-woppy song, and and invest it with such a great melody and pl- that it that it works in 1980. Uh, the the song that ends. Does side one end with do it all with up? Uh, yes, uptown. Yes, ends it or starts side two. It ends side one. I okay, so the next song, either way, now you're gonna get it on a CD if you listen to it anyway, so it doesn't matter. Or just streaming it is uptown, and to me, this is like the most important lyrical song in some ways on the record because it's where he gets into the most complex stuff it's the story in the song is this guy is walking down the street and he runs into this hot girl who asks him out of nowhere are you gay um and uh, probably as i've mentioned before this question must be must have been occurring to a lot of people around this time about prince is he gay you know and he played it up the way bowie did yes she asks him are you gay and he's surprised by the question out of nowhere and says no are you then he decides you know it's like why are you asking me this out of nowhere? Are you? And she's, and he says, then he decides she's, it's like, she's not a bitch. She's just a victim of the world she lives in. And then the lyric he follows it with is said to myself, said, she's just a victim of society and all these games and all its games that she's victimized as much for her small mindedness as, as she victimizes people with her small mindedness. Sure. Uh, and then he elaborates what it's all about because where he comes from, or as he says in the, in the song in his neighborhood, now, where I come from, we don't let society tell us how it's supposed to be. Our clothes, our hair, we don't care. It's all about being there. Everybody's going uptown. Uptown. And what he's saying is, like, uptown in this song is this sort of prince-visualized utopia where nobody gives a shit about whether you're straight, gay, black, white, anything. And, in fact, in the next verse, as he says, white, black, Puerto Rican, everybody just a freaking. You know, like, he <laughs> wants to make a point that this is a multicultural, multiracial 
multi-sexual identity kind of place. And the uptight chick who asked this rude question then eventually comes along with him and loosens up and settles down, you know, in Prince's mind to the rather more righteous activity of fucking him. Well, dancing with him first and then <laughs> fucking him, as he says. Uh, it she is started, called Dirty Mind, people. Yeah. She started dancing in the street. Girl, she's just gone mad. You know, she even made love to me, best that I ever had. And at right. the end of that verse, he restates his He liberates of, her. Yes. And he, it's the end, a story of liberation. Or she's liberated by the situation, right. by the it's place. A, it's a sociopolitical statement, one that he will continue to do until he dies. Yeah. And at the end of that verse, going into the next chorus, he, he restates this kind of credo of Uptown again, where he says, Now where I come from, we don't give a damn. We do whatever we please. It ain't about no downtown, nowhere-bound, narrow-minded drag. It's all about being free. Everybody's going uptown. This is why this album is so brilliant. It... It ends side one with a statement that has been talked about at the beginning of the album. But as as Adam and I were talking about earlier, there are nuances to his lyrical messages on these first four songs or three or four songs. And then in Uptown, he strips it all away and he gives his philosophy. This is his declaration of independence, if you will. And he will end the record with a song called Party Up, which you're not going to play because it's very similar to this in its theory. But... It's not as good. This song combines musicality with message, as good as Prince will get leading up to controversy, in which he takes that theory and really pushes it. Controversy, am I gay or straight? Am I woman or man? Am I black or white? In sexuality, where the song sexuality is about a movement. We're taking our sexuality and changing the world with it. We're changing the politics. We're changing the the racism. We're changing the bigotry. And I think that begins with Uptown. But it's, it's, it's a very revolutionary idea because it's not just the idea that your racist, homophobic, narrow-minded crap is wrong and it's a drag. That's true. A and he's saying drag. all that. <laughs> but that's not, that's not the, the whole thing he's saying because what he's also saying is it's worse for you than it is for me because you're the one missing out. You're closing like, your mind. He's, he, yeah, because what he's adding here is not just that it's bad and that you're a racist and you're ruining it for everybody else, but you're ruining it for yourself because you're missing out on what we've all got going on. Right. Which, you know, and he's couching it, like again, it's couching it in a song about partying and fucking in the streets, basically. But he's saying a message that's much more complex and deeper than that, which is not only is racism and sexism and closed-mindedness all fucking drag, but it's much, much worse for you than it is for us because you're missing out on what we all have. Right. Which is this joy and this celebration in our life that is open to everything. And th- that point about it being worse for you than it is for him is, is a point that's rarely made about racism. And certainly not one that pops up in songs. It's just because it's much too... It's, it's hard to get a simple message across, let alone one that has this many layers. And even as he's saying, let's have a party... This is the difference that Prince and any other great songwriter makes is that there's more to it than the simplistic message. It's also how he does it as a writer. He's using her as the character that will be liberated. He liberates her. He's the voice of the liberator, but he uses her character, and she goes through a transformation. He could easily have told the story about him and how he was introduced to the world, but he's already in that world. So she represents us as the listener. We are being taken into a new world by a black artist writing in white idioms and black idioms. He's, He's stripping in his very musical statement in Dirty Mind the barriers between the black music, the disco music, if you will, and the rock and roll new wave punk music that we talked about at the top of this podcast. He is stripping it away lyrically and musically. It's just a sonic and a literal masterpiece in creating this world in which he will not just abandon for this record. He will build it on the second side of the album and for the rest of his career. Yeah, I mean, and it's a lot to include in a rave up dance track, (laughs) but he's not just saying that 
you're wrong about this. He's saying freedom equals fun. Yes. You know, that this is a world that we have that is so much more than what you have. And it is, what? Well, everybody's uptown. going uptown. It's going and, uptown. Uh, <laughs> so check it out. This is Uptown and Side One, I think.
Okay, a couple of things. A little bookkeeping. So we were both... Well, I was mainly me. I should flog myself. Wrong. That is the first song of the second sign. My point still stands. He, that's how I misremembered it. He bookends. The first song is Uptown, and then the rest of the side takes you on a journey of all those crashing of taboos. And then he ends with Party Up, which, as you said, is ostensibly an anti-war song. But it is, it is also this idea that he will extrapolate more in 1999, which is Armageddon in the face of all the war and during the Cold War and bombs and the, the, the arms race and all the fighting in the Middle East, everything, that Prince was always like, there's another way to do this. You have to change yourself and your, your, your community first. And I think this whole second side speaks to that. Yeah, and he also does a thing that he will do on a lot of the second sides of these records. Uh, he does it very much on Controversy as well, where he... He'll pack the singles on the first side, but on the second side, he wants to just yo-yo you back and forth. It's jarring. Almost like whiplash you between different kind of musical styles and rhythms and tempos and songs, uh, different textures, different flavors. And he wants to sort of shock you with some of the lyrics, but also knock you back and forth between like, I can play this, I can play this, and by the way, I can also play this. Um, <laughs> yes. And we should say that, that this album is almost seamless. It's going to be tough. We're going to try to play the next two tracks, I believe, back to back. But that song, that's what jogged my memory of it being at the beginning of the side two. And it doesn't matter to anybody because no one's buying records anymore. But you go right from this song into the next song and then into the next song after that. But these two songs back to back are really the stripped down, raw, shocking aspect of this record. The first one is called Head, and you don't have to be Fellini to figure that out. Yeah, the second side runs Uptown, Head, Sister, Sister. Party Up, right one into another, yes. and, and, it, and it is like each time, and they're very different. Each time that you, you, it, it, you go from one to the other, it is like a feeling of whiplash, and especially purposely so. Yes. Um, and I wish you could play all three of them together, but we wanted to have a chance to talk about them separately. The song he next goes into is Head, which is it's the other another song with some extra musicians because Dr. Fink plays keys and Lisa Coleman uh, plays the part of the virgin bride on this song. Yeah, this is the first um, time you'll hear a woman come in and do what Prince did a lot after this, was just incorporating women's voices in there. Yeah. And Lisa specifically Coleman, this woman's voice. Lisa yes. Coleman sings on a lot of these records after this, and her, her vocals are great. Um, the woman, there was a woman, Gail Chapman, in the band before this, and when they started performing the song Head on Tour, she had a real problem singing this part and didn't want to do it. And it's one of the reasons, along with her, she was a very religious woman, she ended up quitting the band, largely because of that. And when Lisa Coleman joins, Prince, uh, I, I read a thing where he said uh, singing this part in Head became her sort of like initiation slash hazing. Prince said he thought uh, if she could sing the lyrics to Head, she could handle anything. Yes. Uh, and I mean, the story in the song is about uh, a guy, again, walking down the street, much like in Uptown, meets a girl on her way to her wedding. And he talks her into, instead, in, into, going down on, into, into them going down on each other. And he ends up coming all over her wedding dress. And then she decides she really needs to fuck him. And then uh, even further, she actually, maybe it's a better idea to marry him instead, <laughs> which he thinks is a little crazy, but he goes for it. Um, and the guy who's going to eventually use, use like, Raspberry Beret and uh, Little Red Corvette as a metaphor for Clit here just comes it and says it very simple and raw, head till your love is red at yes. one point. Um, and 
uh, if we could just not leave Lisa Coleman for just a second, because you'll hear her for the first time on a Prince record, she will become a massive part of Prince's oeuvre for the next two or three years. She's a mainstay in uh, in um, Purple Rain. You remember her from the film. Her and Wendy Melavoyne, who I believe still are together, I think. They were lovers, and they were... Uh, uh, still play music together. They were a duo for a long time. They were more influential on Prince than almost anyone musically. They actually infused some of their parts. They wrote songs with him. He, he felt, and he had said at the time, after this record, especially with you know controversy, but more or less 1999 and then Purple Rain, how those two really were a big part of his letting go a little bit of his control. Them. So she was a big, not only vocally, which she does great, wonderful classically trained piano player and uh, somebody who brought Wendy into the band and Wendy becomes a great foil a, a, a sort of a Keith and Mick thing they have going well, for a while. because before, previous to them probably the most important person to him in the bands is Des Dickerson. Des one Dickerson. of the few guys he lets collaborate with him and when Des Dickerson leaves during the uh, 1999 tours I think yes. uh, they bring in uh, Wendy Melvoin as on guitar right. uh, to join the band. Um, but at this point it's just Lisa Coleman um, and that's what forms the revolution and it's bringing them in that actually gets him to, he calls it the revolution on the back cover in reverse lettering sort of on 1999 but he doesn't actually record with a band until until Purple, until Rain. Purple Rain right but right. for now it's mostly it's still just him but this one has Dr. Fink playing some keys and Lisa Coleman singing the part of the Virgin Bride and that really before. cool like he does a really great job I've seen them do this live too and it's just it's a fat fat keyboard sound he does a great job I mean Dr. Fink was there jamming with Prince on drums when they wrote a lot of these songs yeah um you want to play I don't think, sister well, I, back no, to back? I don't, I don't think anyone had ever heard anything as straight up shocking or as sexual as Head before no. this on a record. But even Head is really only a preface to like the <laughs> 92 seconds of pure punk sort of fun salaciousness that he's about to explode into in Sister, which is the song that follows it. You build the sexuality of Head and then it explodes into this like literally minute and a half long song called Sister, uh, which is all about incest. And he describes his sister as he says it in the lyrics. She's the reason for my... Uh, sexuality and there's even a question that a lot of people had over the years of whether he actually under his breath is saying uh, bisexuality right um, show me where it's supposed to go a blowjob doesn't mean blow and then incest is everything it's said to be is right. the, is which r- he sings by the, the way as it's a break so the rest of the song is furious, as, as, as you were saying. It's just like it's a different kind of music. It's punk. It's, it's balls. It's like sonic youth. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just breaks, and he goes, incest is not what it, you know. Incest is everything it's said to be. Down, yes. sister. And then it and goes into the open. chorus. Yes. And it, that happens again after the second verse, because this whole song is like someone massively jerking off hurriedly until it explodes into the chorus. And at the end, in the second verse, he explodes even more ecstatically and furiously. Instead of uh, incest is everything it's said to be, he he just screams, "Oh motherfucker, sister, motherfucker, can't you understand?" You know, it's great. Uh, and it really there's is. another 25 seconds or so of it just blowing up, and then it's just like, literally, as it's about to sort of like come. Uh, <laughs> it is an orgasm. It just it's simply ends orgasm. and goes into party up. I, mean, I don't know whether he's really writing a song about incest or not, or whether coming on the heels of head, he just wants you to know that there is nothing. That is sacred. There's nothing that you have to be set in your ways completely about. Right. And that love is love and sex is love. And, he, and even in the sense of incest, he, I don't know whether he's really trying to make a statement about the, the pros of incest or whether he just really wants to like – it's funny because he changes the music right there. And Head is a very funky song. Yeah. Sister is a punk 
uh, rockabilly rave up. Kind but of. but head has got like a sinister sound to it. You know, there's something yeah. dark about it. And he will explore that later in 1999, where in the middle of songs, he'll just go to these minor keys, and and a woman will go from mo- moaning to screaming for the police. There's a lot of like that kind of undercurrent of uh, you know sex as like the the expression of anger. And of repression, but and not he's here. Doing that? No, 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 no. I mean, but head he is gets funky there. as fuck. It's but there's not, a darkness. Listen to the music. A, here. a little bit, a little bit. It. It's it's a completely funky. But then it it literally explodes into this almost like yes. rapturous punk rockabilly song that only lasts for ninety two seconds right. about incest. It's the sexual um, version of God Save the Queen. And then incest. It, that's the reason I wanted to almost play the whole second side at once if we could is because at the end of Sister, it, it's building and building and building. You think it's going to release into another chorus, and it just stops and goes into party up. Right. Uh, and it's an incredible moment right there, too. Uh, but the second side, he'll do this on records where he jerks you back and forth between feels, between styles, between rhythms, between moods, between melodies. It Each song whiplashes you and snaps you into the next. So we play those two. Just think of it coming out of the end of Uptown and right into this. Head and Sister.
Yeah, so there's sis- that sister, and you can hear that the build at the end. It's like a bridge build, which is the kind of thing that is always written to go back into a chorus or back into a verse. But it's a build to fall into something, and instead it goes, it just stops on a dime and falls into party up, which is the beginning of the song right there. Um, yeah, we just we figured play at the very beginning of that to hear to hear the transition of it, um, but. That that's a that's a furious smoker of a punk song. Period. Yeah. I mean, and uh, party up. You know, it's a song about having a party, but also in the wake of in the year before, President Carter had just reinstated draft registration, and so a lot of people were worried. Oh my God, we're bringing that shit back. Again. Yeah, we're gonna I have the draft. Up. This yep. is not what anybody wants. And uh, this Russians song ends up being. Yeah, it, it ends up being very much a a, a protest against that. Right. Uh, what's a fighting war is such a fucking bore, as he says in the song. Um, got the party up is repeated. Then at the end of the song, the outro is a chant, which he'll do in many songs over these years. In fact, in the next one we're going to play, uh, but he says, you're going to have to fight your own damn war because we don't want to fight no more. You're going to have to fight right. your own damn war. And it's cold. War. The music yeah. stops and it's yeah. them. It's him double and triple over. It's supposed to be a group of people. You're going to have to start your own damn, damn war because we don't want to fight no more. And then he gets louder and no more. And that ends the record. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, like I said, it's a very sociopolitical, sexual, um, asexual, bisexual, uh, you know. Every sexual. Every sexual, but also provocative in a liberating way. And, and as you said earlier, perfectly, he's just – he's throwing these things at you, telling you why do, you, why do these have to be taboo? Why are these barriers? Let's just go – and that's what rock and roll, the history of rock and roll, you know, is, is filled with that, just changing it. And, and instead of, you know, using the euphemisms that were used in blues tropes and rock and roll tropes for years, he just strips it right down to the bare minimum, just like he does musically. And, and Dirty Mind is one of the great albums – of the history of rock and pop and funk and soul, and it really makes Prince Prince from what we're going to see from the in the 1980s when he is a motherfucker. Well, because I think he has other other things to talk about as well. I think he has more important things on his mind and more text to the song. You know, he's not going to bother with a metaphor about giving head. He's just going to talk about giving head, and he'll put something else in the song to talk <laughs> yeah. about. You know, he's he's interested in other things than just the sex of it. He's interested in what the sex means and what it means right. to be thinking about the sex and all these other things. About the roles. The other interesting thing about Party Up is that the groove is actually written by a friend of his, uh, Morris Day. And Morris Day has this groove. He's working there in the studio together. Morris Day is playing this groove. And Prince is like, man, that's fucking great. It's a little slower and funkier, according to Morris in the original version. Um, and Morris Day says Prince heard it and said, you can keep it if you want or I'll, you know, and, and get paid for it. We can make a song out of it and you'll get paid for it. Or you can, or I'll pay you to let me use it. Or you can let me use it and I'll make a band for you and get you a record deal. You know, it's like he gives him a number of choices of what, because he really likes the song. So he's like, you keep it and you'll make money off it. Or I'll pay you to let me use it. Or just let me use it and I'll make a band for you and I'll get you a record deal. Right. And right. Uh, Mars Day thought about it and, and chose the, the third option. So Prince took the groove and turned it into Party Up. And then he created the time. Yes. And we should talk about the time as its own entity and also an offshoot. Uh, Prince's oldest friend really was Morris Day, a drummer from Minneapolis. Like I said, they were in this band together. And uh, it also included, I believe, Des Dickerson or Andre Grand Central? Grand Central. That's what I couldn't think of. And, um, you know, Morris, obviously you could tell if you watch Purple Rain – you know, he, he's filled with great bravado, great personality, sort of a comedy figure, kind of a Cab Calloway character. 
And Prince really feeds on that. And he creates a total funk band. The other thing that Prince said is because Prince is trying to break to branch out into new wave and different ways of showing where Prince is at, he really misses down and dirty, you know, really great funk. And he feels, I'm going to build a band that's just about that. What? He's also, and lets I think them he's a, do that. He's a very creative guy. And I think what he realizes around this time is, I mean, he's making a shitload of music and writing a shitload of songs. All right. And... Dirty Mind is a 30-minute record. Literally. I think it is exactly 30 minutes long or right around 30 minutes. So he's got so much more music than 30 minutes going on. And what he realizes is that he can create other bands and he can use these songs for other bands. So like he can he may have a mission for what he wants his next record to be, whether it's Dirty Mind or 1999 or Purple Rain. And the only songs that fit on that record are the songs that fit on that record. But he's got way, way, way more songs than that. And he finally realizes that one of the things he can do is farm them out to other people, whether it ends up being a single like Shaka Khan's or uh, in the case of The Time and Vanity Six, he can create these bands, write everything for them in in the case of both of their first albums, basically play everything for them except the vocals. And then it also provides him with opening bands. Because he's decided he's never going to open for another band. Right. Well, basically by bringing these bands in, he's got opening bands. He's got a review. And the time are perfect because they rile everybody up and then Prince comes out and he's the big, you know, he's the big act. And the time, they're all great players and they're all Minneapolis-based players, but he gets them together and he, he not only plays on the records, writes them, works with the guys, but he has this big stage that he sets up in Minneapolis so he can train them on how to all their moves the spinning like he did with the revolution which you see all of that in Purple Rain much of the uh, which is like I mean you don't see him doing it in Purple Rain with the time because they're supposed to be a different band right. but he actually did do that much like the Motown had the dance schools and the, 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 the singing schools for their singers yep. um, he builds most of the time out of a Minneapolis band at the time called Flight Time F-L-Y-T-E right. uh, I can't remember who was in Flight Time I think maybe Jellybean Johnson, I know, was the drummer for Flight Time, and maybe Jesse Johnson was the guitar player. He also brings in Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis to play keys and bass, and they, as you mentioned earlier, become one of the most powerful and, and successful production duos of the uh, late eighties. Of the late eighties, yeah. the, they do the Janet Jackson record. We actually went to Jimmy Jam. Uh, he and I like emailed back and forth. He really wanted to do the uh, the remix of uh, Big Yellow Taxi for us, but he was leaving for tour, and I was leaving for. England and we just couldn't get it together to do it uh, but uh, they also had Monty, Monty Moore on keys uh, Morris Day on vocals and Jerome Benton who came from as like as Jerome yeah. was almost a comedic side foil to uh, Morris Day he would come on stage and bring him a mirror when Morris called for one right and Jerome would stay with Prince all the way through Parade and that period because he was Jerome ends up being in uh, Maserati family. and the family and the family I'm not, yeah. not Maserati the family yeah um, and Another a lot Prince of these records, he doesn't always credit himself as uh, written, performed, arranged by Prince, even on uh, on Dirty Mind, because he he creates as well as these bands. He also creates these pseudonym characters for himself, and he'll talk about them. Like I think at somebody says Jamie Starr is a ripoff artist at some point. He creates yeah, yeah. the the character of Jamie Starr, right. who produces. Um, uh, the time, he the time dressed record. up for pic- photographs with Moore's Day f- as this Jamie Star character with a blonde wig and you know a big mustache. But anyway, yeah. Prince plays pretty much every single instrument on the Time record, but he's not credited at all on the Time record, right. except as the pseudonym of Jamie Star as a producer. But he plays everything on it. And one of the songs, which is I, one I really grew up with, he, he co-wrote this song with his guitar player Des Dickerson, and uh, he sings backgrounds on it along with playing everything else. Uh, and Lisa Coleman also sings on it, and it created the whole character of Mars 
Day's character as this rich, suave, super cool playboy rock star. Uh, and it all came together on this song called Cool. I mean, I, the first time album, I love every single song on the record. But uh, Cool... It's quintessential. Yeah, and it ends with the great chant, the back and forth call and response between Morris and the band where he says, band, they say, yeah, everybody, anybody hot? They say, no, you know why? Why? Because we're cool. (laughs) Cool. And they say it over and over again. It's a long song because Prince liked to jam out. And especially on this time album, there's only six songs on it. So he went the distance on a bunch of these songs. This one's 10. We're going to leave you with it today. Um, yes. I don't know if you have anything else to say about it. No, just that this is this is a great way to end the first podcast into showing how Prince starts to become Prince, and then he starts branching out, and all these other characters will represent, which will eventually be, quote-unquote, the Minneapolis sound. And by the way, another stomping four-on-the-floor uh, kick drum sound. Yes. All, will, and by the way, he will. you'll see in the next podcast, he will start working with the Lynn drums, as Adam was saying earlier, but they still become organic. But he is playing the drums on all the songs you just heard. That's Prince playing the drums. Yeah. Incredible. So we're going to say goodbye for today and leave you with the time. Cool. Peace. Late.
Oh, cool. 